Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz. And I'm Abram Benningen. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today, we will be discussing Joy Harjo's poem titled, An American Sunrise. Abram, would you please read this poem? Yes. An American Sunrise. We were running out of breath as we ran out to meet ourselves. We were surfacing the edge of our ancestors' fights and ready to strike. It was difficult to lose days in the Indian bar if you were straight, easy if you played pool and drank to remember to forget. We made plans to be professional, and did, and some of us could sing when we drove to the edge of the mountains with a drum. We made sense of our beautiful crazed lives under the starry stars. Sin was invented by the Christians, as was the devil, we sang. We were the heathens, but needed to be saved from them. Thin chance. We knew we were all related in this story. A little gin will clarify the dark and make us all feel like dancing. We had something to do with the origins of blues and jazz, I argued with the music, as I filled the jukebox with dimes in June. Forty years later, and we still want justice. We are still America. We. Oh, it's so powerful to hear it aloud. That was awesome. (laughs) I bet you could hear the beat, couldn't you? Even as you, oh, that was great. And the music. There's so much music in this um, in this poem. So before we get into the poem and how it's working, can we talk a little bit first? Who is Joy Harjo? Why is she so important? Yes, so Joy Harjo is a member of the Muskegee Creek Nation and was named the 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States in 2019. And she is just a major writer who's, who's composed all kinds of things, children's books, a memoir called Crazy Brave, which is literally what her name Harjo means. Her honors include the prestigious Ruth Lilly Prize for Lifetime Achievement from the Poetry Foundation, the Academy of American Poets Wallace Stevens Award, a Penn USA Literary Award, two NEA Fellowships, a Guggenheim, and so on and so forth. She's just, <laughs> right, like all the prizes you can win, Yes, she's, she's got them. She's won them. And just a little background on her, biographical background that comes through a little bit in this poem. She grew up in poverty. She struggled with alcohol abuse herself. She's a musician who plays saxophone and flute, and she sometimes incorporates that into her readings of poetry. And then, of course, this name, Harjo, which actually comes up in the the poem itself, Beautiful Crazed Lives. And that's, a, a, I feel like, a kind of reference, a, a way to put herself in the poem, since her name means crazy brave. Could we talk about, before we read this poem and before we started recording, you brought up Gerald Weisner's concept of survivance, and that seems so important to our understanding of this poem. Could you say a bit about that? If you look in the poem, there's these senses of threats to the culture, threats to the indigenous peoples, and there's this this sort of giant history of pain and suffering and sorrow in the background. But the poem itself is not necessarily sorrowful. In fact, it, it feels in many ways the opposite. There's a lot of dancing, there's drumming, there's music, there's blues, there's jazz, there's a jukebox, there's, there's this sense of joy 
in the midst of that sorrow and that suffering, and a sense of ongoing dynamic presence. And that's really a little bit what what this idea of survivance means. So the concept comes from a book from that title, Survivance, Narratives of Native Presence. And the idea here is that Native Americans are not defined solely by what white people have done to them. (laughs) They, They are more than a reaction to that. It's impossible to think of them in terms of what are called terminal narratives or the sort of inevitable loss of their culture or the inevitable loss of these peoples. Instead, it's important to recognize just the ongoing presence. I mean, when I teach Native American literature to my students, I always ask my students, how many Native American nations and tribes can you name? And some can get into the double digits. And then I say, well, how many federally recognized national nations and tribes are there? And they're always surprised to learn that there are over 560 in the United States alone. And so this sense of we are here, we have not been wiped out, we are here. And what's also here with us is all of our culture, all of our songs, all of our histories, all of our stories. We still sing them, we still tell them. We, our culture is ongoing in the present. And so this, this idea of survivance is a combination of two words, survival and resistance. And you get both of those concepts in this poem itself. So just that framework alone gives us a whole understanding of what we're hearing in the poem. What listeners may not immediately hear is that this poem, it's a formal poem, in fact. It's following a formal constraint called the golden shovel. Not only is Joy Harjo working with everything that you're describing, she's also working with a form that was invented a few years ago by the contemporary American poet Terence Hayes. He used each of the words from Gwendolyn Brooks's famous poem, We Real Cool, as the end words in each of his lines of poetry. So look at what Gwendolyn Brooks's poem does. We real cool. And then it has an epigraph. The pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool. We left school. We lurk late. We strike straight. We sing sin. We thin gin. We jazz June. We die soon. The reason I wanted to read it is to indicate how brief the poem is and also to call attention to that epigraph that appears before the poem begins. The pool players, seven at the golden shovel, and the golden shovel is a bar in Chicago in mid-20th century America when Gwendolyn Brooks writes this poem in the early 60s. Okay, so you have this amazing poem that's spoken from a collective we. And I've always thought of this as a ballad poem because it speaks of a collective experience as brief as it is, there is a narrative here. These are young people who are skipping school to play pool at the bar. And there's and there's an ominous sense that those choices that they're making will lead to their demise. So that's something that Terence Hayes picks up in his poem when he writes his golden shovel. And then his poem became so popular that other American poets have been writing golden shovel poems as well. And in fact, there was a golden shovel anthology that was published a few years ago 
And it includes so many terrific examples of this form. It includes work by actually many of the poets that we've featured on this podcast, Brenda Cardenas, Matthew Zapruder, Tracy Smith, Alberto Rios, and many, many others. So it's a great anthology in its own right, and it includes Joy Harjo as well. So why is that important? This is Terence Hayes in the foreword to that book. He says this, quote, Where do poems come from, if not from other poems? Where do forms come from, if not from other forms? It reminds me that every poem is in conversation with other poems, but forms are too. They're always evolving. They're not static. And it matters how we insert forms along with content. Just so listeners can can maybe key in on this point, poetry is a conversation. The poems are in conversation with other poems. We are in conversation about poems. And so I think people sometimes have this misconception that poetry is this very solitary act that is done by some very solitary genius whose emotions happen to accidentally, in solitude, overflow on the page. And then we read them in solitude and have a, I don't know, have our own little mystical experience by ourselves in our own rooms. All of this is contextualized by the fact that no poet writes without knowledge of other poems. And the, and the way that we experience poems is in part shaped by the conversations that, like, for example, you and I are having about this particular poem and so forth. Yeah, because poems are social, and even the most introverted among us (laughs) (laughs) must eventually now and then get out into the world. But here's what I also love about that concept of the golden shovel. In Gwendolyn Brooks's poem, it is a location in a certain place and time, and that grounds her poem and gives us essential information. But as a form, what a wonderful name for a poetic form. Golden suggests precious and valuable, first of all, and shovel brings us back to the very first episode we ever made a hundred years ago, Abram, Seamus Heaney's (laughs) Digging, this notion that a poet has to dig for a poem, has to excavate for a poem, that there are layers of meaning that have to be exhumed. And I, I love thinking about how generative that is for any poet who wants to try this poetic form. Yeah, I read somewhere, and I forgive me, I'm not going to remember who said this, but in narrative poetry, we go on a journey, we take a trip. But in lyric poetry, we dig where we stand. And there are always aspects of narrative in every poem. There's always aspect of lyric in every poem. But there's this sense of digging where we stand that is part of the process of these lyric poems. That's beautiful. So can we use that knowledge to get into some of the lines of the poem itself? Yes, and just so our readers are totally clear about what this form is, I think it's worth reading the last words of each line of Joy Harjo's poem. So we read the Brooks's poem. You saw what the poem is that all of these forms are based off of. But here are the last words of the individual lines of Harjo's poem. And you can see how she's both using and playing with the Brooks poem. So these are the words. We strike straight. We sing. We sin. We thin gin. We jazz June. We. There we go. That points to what Terence Hayes said. She's taking the form, but she's manipulating it a bit herself. Yes, exactly right. That way she gets to emphasize what she wants to while still complying with and making the form recognizable. That's nice. I'm very interested in the title of this poem, which is also the title of Joy Harjo's most recent collection of poems. And maybe we can think about that title, An American Sunrise, as we read this poem. 
We were running out of breath as we ran to meet ourselves. We were surfacing the edge of our ancestors' fights and ready to strike. Wow. How does this poem open as you hear it? A couple things. First of all, the titles are super important. I think we've said that in multiple episodes here, but this is not necessarily the title you would immediately assume to be the title of this poem, right? And yet the idea of an American sunrise captures so much because first of all, what makes it American? And second of all, this idea of a sunrise is first of all, common to all of us. And yet is is also brings in this idea of time. So you have the day begins with the sunrise, but the sunrise begins at different points all across America. Think about the different time zones and stuff. So we're all sort of approaching that sunrise at different times from different places. So it offers both common experience and contextuality in that title itself. And it raises the question from the very beginning, like what about a sunrise is even American? And then you, you, you start the poem, we were running out of breath, and you get that first sense of urgency, but also a sense of threat. We're running out of breath sounds almost like on the point of death. And you recall that the Brooks poem, and we'll get to this in just a moment, the Brooks poem ends in death, we die soon. And this one does not. And so you get that, that, that sort of hint of where we're going, but then we don't actually end up there in this poem. We were running out of breath as we ran out to meet ourselves. And so there's this sense of being separated from yourselves and trying to, to reconnect. When I teach creative writing workshops, I always tell students, a poem can't just be beautiful. It can't just be a pretty thing. It has to have some kind of conflict or tension there's a lot of tension in these first few lines. And the, an American sunrise seems to promise a poem of beauty and beginnings, but already from the first clause of the poem, there's a running out of breath. There's a sense of exhaustion and depletion. So that's an example of where there's two things kind of rubbing up against each other right from the beginning of the poem. And then we have these two lines. It was difficult to lose days in the Indian bar if you were straight. Easy if you played pool and drank to remember to forget. So here, straight means sober. So it's difficult to lose days in the Indian bar if you're sober. Easy if you're drinking and remembering to forget. These lines are interesting to me because... Earlier, in line two, Harjo says we were surfacing the edge of our ancestors' fights and ready to strike. So there's a deep sense of history there. And yet, in the next sentence, there's a sense of a desire to forget that ancestry, too. Yeah, and I feel like there's a, there's a great little callback, the, the playing of pool in this bar, right? There's a, there's a little play off of the Brooks poem where they're playing pool in a bar there, too. And then you get this line, we made plans to be professional and did. And I feel like at that moment, you begin to see this turn in the poem. So if the first four lines are about the ancestors' fights, the, the kind of separations from ourselves, running out to meet ourselves, and then it feels to me like there's a, there's a, a pretty dramatic turn in this poem with this and. So... All of the first part is a little bit a sense of what the past has been like, what it has done to us, and how we're responding to it. But then we get this sense of, but by the way, we've got our own culture here, and it's ongoing, and we're ongoing. And so it turns, and some of us could sing when we drove to the edge of the mountains with a drum. We made sense of our beautiful, crazed lives under the starry stars. We are people of song, people of story, and the story continues. There's an insistence on song 
an insistence on making poetry and song in this poem that is so important to the joy that we're feeling as the poem accumulates these details. All these words, sang, singing, dancing, music, story, jukebox, blues, jazz, this is at the end of the day a joyful poem. It's not one that is blind to what has happened or to the state of affairs, but it is one that refuses to be defined by that state of affairs. There's a refusal, and I also like the argument. So you just pointed to the to the jukebox line, I, and I, which I love a lot. We had something to do with the origins of blues and jazz. I argued with the music as I filled the jukebox with dimes in June. Great uh, sounds, by the way. We haven't even talked about rhythm and sound in this poem. Let's hear that again, though. We had something to do with the origins of blues and jazz. I argued with the music as I filled the jukebox with dimes in June. Like she's making very specific word choices there to kind of slow down on those open ooh sounds and make it really beautiful and thus demonstrating her point, inserting the indigenous experience and poetry into the origins of blues and jazz, which are traditionally spoken of in terms of the African-American experience, but she's saying, no, look at what I'm contributing here. Look at what we have all contributed here to the history of blues and jazz. It's wonderful. And then you get this break, this space in the poem. There's a, there's a break before the last and final line, and this is the last and final line. Forty years later, and we still want justice. So, so you have this, all of this poem, all of this music, all of this joy, and you have this suddenly this sort of recognition of, wait a second, it is still, we are still seeking this justice. And this incredible line, we are still America, we. She could have ended this poem with, of course, she's complying with the form, but it feels like the poem ends on we are still America. Like if the poem had ended there, it would have really rung like a bell, you know, that insistence. But she ends on a one word, sort of standalone object, we. Forty years later, and we still want justice. We are still America. We. Now, what does that do to the poem? Well, I do feel like it brings us back to that collective sense of culture and of presence. It's not just that we are still America. You know, when I teach writing, I, I tell my students the emphasis falls at the end of the sentence. And so wherever you put last is where the stress goes. And if we had ended on the word America, this would be a poem about America. But since we end on the word we, we recognize that this is a poem about a certain we, who in part defines what exactly America is, but isn't going to be defined exactly by how we conceive of American history or what exactly has happened in American history. I can't help but think of the poem that we discussed months ago, Amanda Gorman's poem from the inauguration, The Hill We Climb, that we, that insistence on the we. Even if there are very particular struggles of indigenous peoples in this poem, there's a way in which Joy Harjo is insisting on forging a we that is as collective as possible. It's really important here to think about what she does not say. And that's where form really matters, because there's a ringing silence as well at the end of this poem. And if she's following the Golden Shovel poem form exactly, it ought to end on some form of we die soon. 
But the whole point is she doesn't finish the form and the non-finishing of that, the, the fact that she does not include we die soon is precisely the point. We don't die soon. <laughs> we are still here. We are not dying off. And how appropriate that her last name is Harjo, crazy brave. Those words all together, joy, crazy, brave, that insistence on survival, that insistence on, on hope and not closing things down, her, her very name is a poem. And of course, she's given us so much fantastic poetry throughout her life, and it's just magnificent. With all that said, Joanne, would you be willing to read this poem again? Yes. An American Sunrise. We were running out of breath as we ran out to meet ourselves. We were surfacing the edge of our ancestors' fights and ready to strike. It was difficult to lose days in the Indian bar if you were straight, easy if you played pool and drank to remember to forget. We made plans to be professional and did, and some of us could sing when we drove to the edge of the mountains with a drum. We made sense of our beautiful, crazed lives under the starry stars. Sin was invented by the Christians, as was the devil, we sang. We were the heathens, but needed to be saved from them, thin chance. We knew we were all related in this story. A little gin will clarify the dark and make us all feel like dancing. We had something to do with the origins of blues and jazz. I argued with the music as I filled the jukebox with dimes in June. Forty years later, and we still want justice. We are still America. We. So good. Thank you for reading that. And thank you to the Wiley Agency for granting us permission to read this poem, which appears in An American Sunrise. To learn more about Joy Harjo and the Golden Shovel Forum, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And please subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts. And please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And real quick, a shout out to Laura Evers, who has been helping us edit some of these podcasts. Thank you very much, Laura. Oh my goodness, yes, absolutely. And thank you everyone for listening.